Hello and welcome to the You Matter to Christ podcast. Many of our listeners and guests call this podcast an experience because throughout the variety of extraordinary people we have on the show, you'll hear stories of overcoming trauma, hitting record-breaking business goals, people forgiving the unforgivable, and yes, even miracles that will shock and inspire you. On this show, you'll hear from professional athletes, entrepreneurs, and everyday people from all walks of life. Discover the profound truth that regardless of your background or circumstances, you matter deeply to the creator of the universe. You were made for a purpose, and you matter to Christ. Get ready for inspiring stories, personal testimonies, and uplifting messages that remind us of the unchanging love and grace available to all. And remember this, you matter to Christ. Hey everybody, Chad Burmeister, CEO of ScaleX.ai and the host of the Living a Better Story podcast. Today I've got another podcaster with me uh, who runs a podcast called Parker on Tap and he talks with his audience about similar types of conversations. So this ought to be fun. We're going to go deep. We're going to go quick. And Steve is the CEO and founder of Level Wing. Um, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Chad. Yeah, Nashville. So you just moved, I believe, from South Carolina. We we actually lived in North Carolina for a time, so made our way to Charleston once or twice. Um, so you moved from Charleston back to Nashville, and sounds like you're going to be commuting a bit. What uh, what brought you back to Nashville? Yeah, you know, it's um, you know, I grew up here, and and it's funny because when I meet people here, they're like, "Oh my God, you're like one of the few that you know are original." Because Nashville, the way people know Nashville now, it's it's this big city and it's all this entertainment and things that are going on. It's always been an entertainer city, but it really was more of a you know farm horse town back in the '70s and '80s. You know when I was really you know growing up and you know graduated high school in the early '90s, it still was that way. And then it started to change, you know, probably in, in the late '90s. Um, but you know, so I, I you know I moved to New York around that time and and started this company Level Wing, which is a you know an award winning marketing agency and um, really proud of what we do. But our first office was in New York, and then after a few years we scaled it and, and opened an office in Charleston, which is where I just moved from. And then we decided over this last year to open an office in Nashville, which had been on our radar for a couple of years to make that decision, and it just finally came to fruition. So we're super excited about that and. Um, you know, it was good to come home and a little bit, um, even though I would, I would come in for personal and work reasons, probably eight or 10 times a year anyway, but, uh, but yeah, you're correct. I'll be doing uh, a little bit of commuting back and forth, Nashville and Charleston, primarily, um, at least once a month, uh, once New York is sort of back up and running up there a bit too. Yeah. Wow. Well, two, two great spots. I, I my Nashville story, I remember FedEx, we went to Memphis all the time and there was one sales kickoff where we drove up the road to Nashville. And I think we stayed at the huge hotel. What's that? The Opry hotel. Um, Opryland hotel. Yeah. yeah Opryland. I got lost every night that I was there. And, and I remember what, four or five something years ago there, it flooded. And I saw pictures of where I had stayed and it was up to where the restaurant was. And I was like, are you, oh, it's yeah, like a fishbowl in there. I think they had 30 or 40 feet of water you know, in that place. But I, you know, I went there not long ago. I mean, it was probably, you know, probably five or six weeks ago. I mean, it's beautiful again. And it's cleaned up. Looks good. Yeah, of course. That's awesome. Well, I like to get my audience to know you by going back to when you're a kid, because a lot of times we move through life and, you know, you go to college and then you go to your first job. And, and a lot of times what's interesting about people is what they're passionate about when they were younger. So if you think back to six, seven, eight, kind of when you got up in the morning, you know, what excited you? What were you passionate about at that young age? Yeah, it's um, it's a great question. I mean, I, when I was six, seven, eight, you know, that whole probably range of years there, I mean, I, you know, like what did I dream about? I mean, it was, you know, I, I dug in the dirt, climbed trees, I'd fall out of them <laughs> quite a few times. I mean, <laughs> going fishing, got attacked by a dog going fishing. I got scars on my calf to prove it. I mean, um, playing in the creek that was outside of our house, um, 
you know, I'd, I'd pick up and play with a ball anytime I could. I just, you know, there's even like a, a picture of me on the cover of one of the school little flyers, like with a poem called, you know, there's nothing better than a ball. I mean, I just loved having a ball around. Um, you know, we played outside a lot when I was that age. Um, I was a bit of a country boy. I mean, it's here in Nashville, of course. We didn't have a ton as a family back then. Um, you know, my parents both worked full time. They, um, you know, you know, sometimes two jobs. My dad, you know, my dad was a, uh, a history teacher at a junior high. So, you know, in the summers, he had to have another job kind of just to make ends meet. Uh, but it was fine. I mean, we didn't, kids like me and my siblings, we didn't know any different. Um, I loved to explore. We would woods back behind our house, which seemed huge back then. And, and now if I look at them, they're very small. But, you know, you'd get up in the morning, you'd go back in the woods and you would come back at lunch and go back again and come back at dark. You know, it, like there wasn't a whole lot of oversight, you know, <laughs> yeah, either, right. you know, right. back then, um, you know, but that was it. You know, I also, you know, my dad, like I said, my dad was a, a junior high history teacher. He was also one of the football coaches at the junior high. So every day after school, I would get dropped off at the junior high on one of the buses. And I would just watch practice, you know, from this hill that overlooked, um, you, know, you know, the entire practice field, um, you know, and I would just find stuff to play with, you know, I'd make up stories or pretend, you know, I was playing something. I would sneak into the football stadium adjacent to the, to the practice field and just create things, pretend I was playing or I was a superhero or whatever would come to mind. Um, and I love that actually. It was, those are great memories. Um, and it was a lot of freedom. So, but I just had to make up a lot. Yeah. You know, interesting. That's, that's what I really remember. I just had to make up a lot of things on my own. And, and create, I have to believe from looking over the hill, you probably picked up some ideas on strategy and, you know, and you, 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 when you have a different vantage point, it changes perspective on everything, right? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it definitely does. That's wild. Um, so if you think of the connector between then and now of what you're doing, being a CEO, building an office in New York, Charleston, and now Nashville, does any of that passion when you were younger, how does that tie into what you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. I mean, 100% it does. I, I, um, I've thought about, funny enough, I've thought about this a lot over the years. A few years ago, um, we as a company decided everyone every four years could take a one month fully paid sabbatical. And and I sort of insisted that our, or didn't sort of, I did insist that our senior leadership team do the same, myself included, you know, as a CEO, because I felt I'd been, at, I'd worked at companies that had false benefits before, you know, um, you know, where it's like, well, you have all this vacation. Well, yeah, good luck on taking that then, mm -hmm. uh, which we actually encourage it. But I, I remember on that trip, um, you know, your mind, it just, because you're gone for so long, it just sort of frees you to think. And I just took lots of notes. I remember I thought about work a lot. I thought about personal stuff a lot, but I took, took a lot of notes, probably typed on my iPad, you know, 30, 40, 50 pages of notes, like a small book, essentially. Um, and part of it was about thinking about back when I was a kid and what things that I really enjoy and, and how did that translate to now, and especially now as a father and with, you know, two kids and, um, and what sort of aspects of things that I really appreciated could I bring, make sure I bring into my kid's life. Um, but, you know, I mean, listen, this was back when I was a kid. This is back before the Internet. It was before you had TV shows at your fingertips. Like when we finally got any cable, it was the little slider thing, if you remember that. It yeah, yeah, the you know, button no ones. Room. I remember the little button ones. Oh, yeah, they were, they, I mean, compared to today, it was, it's awful. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, having to be resourceful, make up games and ideas and just sort of explore, you know, I think a lot of those things connect back, you know, to today. Um, you know, when I was, when I would be at my dad's football practices, for example, you know, I was alone a lot during that time, during those couple hours. And I was in a safe area, but not with a ton of oversight. Um, and so I just had to make that time work for me. And so I just did things, right? I didn't really, qu didn't question it because you're a kid, you don't question it. And you, you, you know, I think that that would probably be the, you know, if there was a secret connection to what, how, who I am today and, and how that's impacted my career, I would say that's it. Cause I've just always been able to do things on the fly, be resourceful, figure it out, create something. Um, if I have a thought or idea that I really like, I'll bring it to reality. Whereas most people will say, ah, it's crazy. Don't do it. Don't try it. It's too hard. It's too expensive, whatever. So yeah, if there's a connection, I would say it's that because I think that allowed me to overcome and find 
the resourcefulness to solve problems. Yeah, love it. What about there's always a bump in the road or two or 10 <laughs> for all of us. There are, there are always a lot of them. There's always a handful of them, right? And sometimes we we think of them as monster-sized bumps. And you know, if you're looking down on them, they're probably not as big as we think. But what right. is there something in there that that was painful at the time where you're like, man, that really sucked. It was the worst thing that happened to me. And then looking back, you say, wow, that was one of the inflection points. Oh, like a painful memory as a kid? Yeah. Um, other than, or even teenager, I'm, young adult, well, I mean, whenever, right? I mean, there was well, all throughout life. There is right. I mean, I, I, there's plenty of them. I, you know, I'll, I'll save you this one, but I'll, I'll touch on it. Like when I was really small, and I said we didn't have a lot. Like God, our this apartment we lived in was roach infested, and they would fall out of my cereal boxes. And like to this day, like that's my full life terror when I see <laughs> when I see any sort of roach. Like I'll burn the house down over it. So. Um, but you know, I mean, I mean, look, probably more tangible <laughs> and relatable is, um, and I'll just I'll stay on this theme a little bit since, we're, since I just mentioned it. Um, at those football practices, like I said, I'd have time to roam and explore, and and one day I went into the locker room while practice was going on, and I think I was like seven at this at this point, and you know, and, and the locker rooms weren't anything special. You got to remember this is. Nashville, it's country town, great, uh, the, the, the school had a great football team, really like well-known team, you know, it's Gallatin is the name of it. It's just north of Nashville and um, had a lot of rich history. And, but the locker room was like, it's all green and yellow because we were the green wave. And that was sort of our colors kind of looked like the Green Bay Packers. And the locker rooms were all painted green with wood and they had chicken wire in them. That's sort of what held everything. And you'd have a hook in there. You could put your helmet or shoulder pads on whatever. Um, but the bottom of the locker, which was, you know, sitting high up was also chicken wire. And I walked in this one day and noticed like there were lots of pencils and pens that were just laying around in all the players, all the kids lockers. And I just collected them. And, you know, I had this bundle of probably, you know, 70 or 80 pens and, you know, well chewed number two pencils. And, <laughs> um, and I loved it. I was like, I just found like, this a gold bar. I was so excited, right, to have these things, um, which is the kind of stuff that excites you at seven. And and I remember, you know, after practice, you know, my dad and some of the other coaches, they were all sit in this one office and talk about practice or talk about, what, you know, whatever they talked about, fishing or something. And then, you know, I'd get in the car with my dad and we'd go home. And on the drive home, my dad didn't notice it. And he'd always chat with me and stuff. But when we went to get out of the car, he said, um, he said, Steve, he said, you know, where did you get the, all those pens and pencils. And I was like, well, I found them. And cause I can remember this, even being seven, I remember it. So it's so crisp and clear. Cause it was such a defining sort of moment. Um, and I said, I found them. And he said, well, where? And I said, well, in the, in the lockers. <laughs> and he's like, son, those are, those are not your pens and pencils. And I'm like, but I found them, dad. He's like, they're not yours. And tomorrow you're giving them back. And I just cried because, you know, I don't know. I don't think I was really had the mindset of finders keepers, but it was sort of, but I worked for this, you know, I created these things, you know what I, I don't know, like whatever thought <laughs> yeah, you have. Yeah, yeah. So the next day, you know, I get dropped off at practice and um, watch practice. And after practice, a lot of times I would race some of the players back to the, the field room, to the field house, the locker room. Um, and on this one day, my dad at the end of practice, you know, of course, blew the whistle like usually, and they always have a little talk. And he and he called me over, and he had those pens and pencils with him, and he said, "Hand them to me." And he said, um, "You know, everyone, my son wants to say something to all of you." And I just remember being terrified. And you know, it's funny because I've told this story to a few people over the years, and some people are like, "Oh my God, that was so mean," and he shouldn't have done that. I'm like, you know, I, I think it was probably the right thing to do, and the way it's impacted my life, I think it was the right thing to do. Um, but he, he, you know, I had to stand there and I had to say, I apologize for stealing all of your pens and pencils. And, you know, I think my dad had probably talked to them prior to the practice and said this was going to happen and he wanted them to take them from me. So one by one, these big look like gladiators to me, even though they were seventh and eighth graders at the time. But, but I was seven um, and they're in their full uniform, hot and sweaty and everything. And like they come by one by one and take a pencil or a pen and and some of them would say, it's okay, buddy, or it's all right, little man, or, you know, whatever. 
Um, but I just stood there and cried and just boohooed. And, you know, it, you know, so the thing I took from that, like years later that I can remember is it just taught me to be accountable and be responsible for the choices you make. And, you know, I've, um, I've threatened my kids with that <laughs> a few times. Uh, they've never quite done what I did, but, uh, but there's been a few instances and I told them that story. And, you know, so I think they might have the fear of God in them that I'll ever do that to them. So they, they stay pretty clear, but, but it was a great lesson to learn. Wow. I'm writing a kid's book on choices. And so I've talked to a dozen people, including my mom and dad and said, Hey, how do you make choices? And depending yeah. on who you ask, Rich Blakeman is a CRO that works for me. And he says, well, I, I look at how it affects other people, how it affects my family, and then me, because he's kind of a selfless individual. Individual, So he looks at it, people, family, him. Other people, they might say, well, whatever's best for me. Uh, it just, it seems to me there's no perfect guidebook for when you get to the why in the road, which choice do you make? From that lesson that you learn, have you, you know, what, if you were to define how to make a good choice, can you share something with the audience on that from that experience? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, I think it taught me things like, for lack of a better term, like how to man up, you know, when you're wrong, like take responsibility, say you're sorry, stick your tail between your legs, take your shot and move on. Yeah. you know, and learn from it. I mean, don't do it repeatedly, but, but, I, you know, it, that certainly taught me accountability, responsibility. It, you know, it, it, it was, it's one about, you know, I, I've said, I say this all the time. I've, my wife knows this, my, my kids know this. Um, anyone that works for me, a lot of them have heard this, you know, you just, it's such a great opportunity to take responsibility. And I think a lot of people don't, um, you know, I notice when I'm being attentive to this, I, I notice a lot of people avoid responsibility. They avoid being accountable. Um, people, you know, if something's wrong with, say someone sends a report and there's something wrong in it, very rarely will someone say, that's my fault. They'll say, oh, um, well, we missed that. We'll, we'll fix it. We'll get back to you. It's like, say you're sorry. Say right, it's right. my fault. Even if it's not, if you're part of the team, take that accountability. It's you know, over the years running a, a marketing ad agency, anytime I've ever had a client call and they're upset with something that wasn't done well or wasn't done right or maybe failed expectations in some way, the first thing I always say is it's my fault. And by the way, 99% of the time, I have no clue at that moment what the hell they're talking about. You know, like, I wasn't part of what yeah, made that right, happen. Right, right. But it's your moment, structure that, with, with the processes and the people that are on the bus. Yeah, and so it ultimately yeah. rolls to you. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and I've even had a couple over the years say, Steve, it's not your fault. It's so-and-so on your team. And I'm like, but it is mine. And but I'll it see is. it through. I'll make sure it's corrected. I'll use it as a coaching moment. We'll improve. Like, it's fine. You know, and, and I think that's how you build relationships. You know, like you can't, I don't think you can, I truly don't think you can build relationships if everything's good all the time. Like I don't have a single friend in life that I haven't fought with yeah, or had a disagreement with, you know, and once I fought, I mean, not physical. I just, I haven't had, I don't have any that I haven't had disagreements with even my wife <laughs> disagreements, you know, like it's normal. Um, but I, you know, I would say that, that in some ways that's been a big gift to me that I don't have a whole lot of concern about taking the responsibility for something you know I, I just do it and it usually always works out in fact it's always given me a great opportunity to build a better relationship with someone because they you know at that moment they know they can trust you yeah it's funny i was on the receiving end of the pencil hack where someone in my junior high school i remember i had moved towns to another small town in castle rock mm -hmm. and and all of a sudden you know, my mom gives me my pencils and pens and they're all missing and the bags unzipped. And I remember looking because the person who did it was right there and caught red handed, but I didn't see the pencils in his hand. So I knew who it was and he never claimed responsibility for it. And I called him out. I'm like, Hey man, you did that. And he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And I know it was him to this day. And he's divorced, it, it, you know, and you could, you can, you can see beyond a person 
just in how they respond to those. So that's an amazing lesson that your dad gave you to your point at the time. It's like, Oh, that's mean. But those are the kinds of lessons that are important to pass to our kids and their kids and so on and so forth. Well, I think it's rare. I mean, you know, Chad, um, you know, most people I do believe will, will work really hard and put a lot, expend a lot of energy to avoid being accountable and, res- and responsible. Now, I don't think they're doing it to their detriment intentionally, you know, or, or even realize that it's just sort of like, you don't want to be at fault. And I get that emotionally it's psychological, right? But people will avoid that for like anything, everything, like the smallest things, things as simple as just being on time. Right. right I mean, right. Give some and the payoff excuse. on the back end of actually taking accountability is actually better than keeping it inside. Yeah. I mean, listen, if, if, if you're late, just I'm late, it's my fault. Not traffic's bad. And like, yeah, no one cares. Like, guess yeah. what? no one cares. Yeah. 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 You know, especially if it's someone that has a lot more seniority to you or, you know, that you're working on their dime, they certainly don't care. And they shouldn't, you know, just take the hit, move on, but don't, don't make, don't make it the fault of something else. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really rare that people do that um, or do the opposite of that. And, and I think, you know, I throughout most of my life from the time of the pencil incident have, and it's worked really, really worked out very well. So yeah, that's awesome. What if you, you know, if there's one thing you could accomplish, and this is kind of a loaded question, so I'll, I'll preface it with that. But if there's something you could accomplish that would change everything for you, what would that be? And it doesn't have to be accomplished. It could because that's kind of a, a different word. But what's the one thing you'd just love to see change in your life? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say I'd say the easy answer for me is just to find like daily calm peace, if you want to call it that, but just a a daily calm, you know, like I've my whole life, I've been pretty amped up. You know, if you want to call it type a, whatever kind of label you want to put on it, fine. But always been pretty amped up, pretty excitable, um, get pretty passionate (laughs) about things. Um, at times maybe to my detriment, you know, and, and, you know, I think, you know, I, well, I'll say this, asking me that question, the answer is not going to be more money or, or more opportunity in life. I've, I've had plenty and, and I want more of course, but it's more of a desire versus a need at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and if there's one thing I would say would change everything, it would be to find that calm. Like I'll listen, I'll take more big wins and new opportunities and, um, and all those sorts of things. But finding that calm, I would say is, it's, you remember that deodorant commercial from the 80s? It's like, never let them see you sweat. Yeah, and yeah. You have yeah. like actresses and actresses and there's like, never let them see you sweat. You know, when you're under pressure, when you're intense, when you're all these things, it's sort of like that. It's like, you know, and not so literal, but just not getting too fired up, not getting too emotional, still having the passion and the desire, but sure, sure. not allowing the, you know, that angst, if you read an email and your heart starts to beat because it just pisses you off. Like, yes, yes, yes. And it's nothing even most of the time, it's nothing to even be angry about. <laughs> it's like in that, in that moment, it does it to you. Yeah. If, if I could find a way to, to rid that, I would. Have you heard of this app called 75 hard? No, there's a book, there's an app. I actually did it in Q4 and it's, there's only six things you have to do every day. And, you know, on the surface, it sounds like it's not that hard. And by day 21, it wasn't that hard. But you work out twice a day for 45 minutes each. Yep. Now, you don't have to do anything fancy. You don't have to bench 250 pounds or anything. But it's just, it could be stretching. So, you know, you do a Peloton for 30 minutes. Then maybe you do Peloton meditation for 10. You just hit your 45-minute mark, right? Round up. Yeah. Um, one has to be outside. So when it's snowing in Colorado, you're running in boots. That's a little nutty. You drink a gallon of water a day. You read 10 pages in any book a day and no drinking for nine for 75 days. But when you talk about a level of calm to anything that's going on, that level of commitment, it just brought that for me. And so I was like, this is awesome. Let's see what day 76 does. And then it was a letdown. It went from six steps to like 20. I was like, I thought it would go from six to three, right? I was like, okay, yeah. let's go to one workout a day now because we're done with the 75 days. So what I'm gonna, what I'm in process of building to what you said earlier is, hey, 
whenever I have an idea, I just go do it, right? Most people sit back and let it wait. So I'm going to build an app that's kind of like that, but gets to the calm, right? And also helps people connect with what their God-given talents are. Because I think a lot of people are playing in a game they shouldn't be playing. And they should realize what they were when they were six, what they're passionate about and go, oh, that's how the dots should connect, right? You've connected the dots. A lot well, I mean, of people and, I and look, and I mean, you know, I think I've connected some of them and by no means perfect, but I think the, um, the key word that I think that I heard you say was commitment. And, and I talk about this all the time with our team and, and even with clients and, and myself at times, like where, where are you committed? Like, what are you committed to? Right. Because, you know, I, I like, for example, I, I love working out. I hate to run running does not work for me. <laughs> and I was always a sprinter. I'd never like, if you told me to run half a mile, like we're kidding ourselves. <laughs> and, and, um, but uh, a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted a really hard sort of new year's resolution. And I was in, I said, like, I, I'm going to commit to running at least one mile per day, every day. Now the commitment really wasn't the mile the commitment was the every day. Cause that's, mm. that's where you can find, ex- I can give you 10 excuses not to go do it every day. Right. Lots of reasons. Um, but you know, once you start to do it and it becomes a habit, then it becomes much easier. I, I ran in an airport once because I was an international flight. I knew that if I got on that flight before I ran, I would pass the international date line and have an asterisk like Mark McGuire because yeah. he took steroids or something, right? Like it's that sort of thing. And, and I ran in like six different countries and I ran in parking garages and just wherever it took me, sometimes at 11 at night, sometimes at, at five in the morning before I, cause I knew I had something that was going to be in my way the whole day but it became easy. And then I hit, I hit day 365. And the next day, I didn't think I would do anything, but I got it. I ran. And then the next day, and the next day, eventually I tore my patellar tendon a little bit. And so I stopped at 371, but it actually just became normal. Right. Yeah. And I average, yeah. I think I averaged like, you know, 2.1 miles or something per day, but you know, it didn't even matter. And the funny thing was I had a lot of people that gave me grief over miles and a lot. It's not a lot. I'm like, then do it with me. No, no, no. Okay, half a mile with me. Okay. There was one guy, he was so good friend of mine, but just like really hassling me. And I said, look, why don't you run a hundred, a hundred yards a day? I'll do the mile. You do a hundred yards. And he wouldn't do it. And I'm like, your problem is you can't commit. You can't commit to it, but you're going to talk the armchair quarterback all day. And that's now we have a problem. So, but you know, it's, people find it hard to commit, but commit, if you commit, truly, truly commit yourself to things, it becomes pretty easy to achieve them. Yeah. And it, I mean, have you heard of a guy named Dan Martell by any chance? Yeah, I have. Dan, uh, I went on his trip to Canada for Maple Summit, the ski trip Mm -hmm. about a year and a half ago. And he talks about commitment and he does a lot of great podcasts and shows and everything else. He talks about the $1 problem, the $10, the the $100 and $1,000 problem. And he talks about playing in a different game. So I'm, I'm kind of moving off the, off the topic of the, of the last one we were yeah. talking about, but um, have you found that the higher you move up, um, you're, you know, you have to play in a totally, your mindset has to change, right? If, if your company loses a hundred thousand dollars in a quarter, and that's a different feeling than if you lost $50 <laughs> you know, on, yeah. on, on an investment or something like that. Talk yeah, a little so, bit I mean, about that. I mean, it's a lot different. I think, you know, your, your, you know, the stakes get higher in some ways and not as much in others. I mean, if you've been able to, to be financially responsible and, and find a way to, you know, for your personal life to be pretty well balanced there, then, then you can risk some other things, you know, particularly if you're the owner of the business, um, you know, but I would say I'd look at it in two different ways. I mean, I can remember the first time I ever went to Las Vegas, losing $25 to me was painful. Now, let's keep going. I can do that a few times and it's not an issue. You know, like, don't even think about it. Um, But, you know, I would say by the same token, you know, in business, you know, we've had moments where, you know, like we, I won't mention the the brand, um, but we had a very large, well-known retailer in this country that filed bankruptcy and stuck us with a bunch of money. And sucks. Like, what are you going to do about it? And it was six figures. I mean, it wasn't $5,000. Yeah, mean, it was, it's it was, people's it was a, payroll is counting on it, that. It was money. a real six figure number. And, you know, we've also, you know, had, you know, whenever you, we, you know, we deal with a lot of media, um, 
it's incumbent upon us to be good stewards of those dollars. If we make a mistake, I don't go back to the client and ask for those dollars. We eat it. Like, oh, it's not their fault, right? Now, that doesn't happen ever or really, I can't recall it happening in the last, you know, eight plus years because um, we have better tools and systems in place. But, you know, back in the earlier days of the business, when we were trying to do a lot of stuff in spreadsheets, a lot of human error. I remember once we had a $400,000 human error and we had to eat it and it sucked. It was a bad year. Um, you know, we've had to overcome getting hit where you might lose a client, you know, on a given Tuesday that was a couple million bucks in revenue to you. Yeah, it sucks. Bad Tuesday. Now, depending on where you are in the scale and scope and size of your business, that could completely shut you down or it can be a really bad couple months, you know, and um, thankfully for us, a bad couple months. It, we had to really regroup from that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think that just the stakes are different, that what you're trying to achieve is different. Um, you know, I always try and remind myself that there's a lot of people that would love to have, I'll never, I'm not going to complain to you, even if you ask me to complain, because there are a lot of people that would like to have my problems. And, and I recognize that extremely well from the way I grew up. And yeah. so, um, you know, look, my dad's not here anymore. He's passed away, but he would love my problems, <laughs> you know, like love them, like be thrilled with them. Yeah. And, um, like beyond overjoyed at them. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, because you never had that and, yeah. you know, and my mom's here thankfully and she's, you know, benefits from it and is appreciative of it. And, and I, you know, I think that, I don't know. I, I just, I, I think that you just have to put it in proper perspective, I guess. Well, and it, it's interesting because it makes me think of the choices conversation. A lot of uh, senior people that have wisdom and experience might say, well, take a job that's stable and you can work there for 20 years and avoid risk and, you know, never find yourself in a $2 million problem. It's like, well, then if you can't find yourself in a $2 million problem, then you're not going to find yourself in a $50 million company either. You're going to be in a $100,000 a year job taking no risks. So, well, I think, you know, I, I think the thing is, yeah, look, I mean, I, I think if you, if you want to, you know, I, and I've mentored and, and you know, tried to work with a lot of people, both, you know, startup founders and people that run other successful businesses that were kind of peers and, and people that are, that I've hired and that work for me and, and, um, and even people on the outside that just come to me sometimes for advice. And I always tell them the same thing. Like, it's all a matter of, of what you want to accomplish and how much you want to risk. Like when, when I started leveling with the guy who I co-founded with Jeff Adelson Yan, you know, we quit our jobs cold Turkey in New York city and started this business. I mean, there wasn't one single person in my life that told me that was a good idea. Not one, including my parents. Not one person thought that was a great idea. And for two years, it kind of looked that way. <laughs> you know, like the first, the first year, I mean, the first year we were in business, which is not a full year, but we made $6,000 each. I mean, listen, it's New York City. It's 2002. I'm not gonna tell you what I paid in rent, but let me, let me promise you, like, it's plenty. And that that $6,000 didn't go very far. And, um, and the next year we had a huge year, quadrupled, made 24,000. Uh, it's New York city. It's indifferent, it's zero. Right. So it took three years for things to really happen. And I had a million reasons to stop at any given moment because for lots of opportunities out there, you know, uh, lots of them. So, I, you know, I'm glad we did though. And, and, and overcame that those, frustrations and challenges and, un, you know, uncertainty because it really paid off and it took, it took a lot of effort for that to happen. Um, mm. and that that's hard for people to see unless they've done it or they've been there at that moment. I heard the CEO of Ugg Boots speak at an event in New York city a couple of years ago, and he had a very similar story. It was like two to $3,000. He moved from Australia thinking, oh, mate, my Ugg boots are going to sell like crazy, you know, crikey. And he gets to SoCal and he's like, all right. And he sold $2,000. Then the next the same thing. He goes, then I doubled it. I did 4,000. Awesome. Right. Not in Southern California. And, and then he finally goes out and gives it to these models to be on the cover of a magazine. 
and people looked at it like, no, those are models. Those aren't surfer girls and guys. They, they don't look like me. Then Pam Anderson got a hand of them on her own accord and got in a photo in a, in a uh, newspaper. And everyone was like, oh, wow, I need one of those. And so then it jumped like crazy. Then it went to a million to two to five. Then someone bought his company, his partner took him out. And then he came, they brought him back and it turned into this really interesting ride. But it, the inflection point for him was that Pam Anderson model thing. And then I think he said Oprah also. But it, what it made me think of is a lot of people have this celeb, once there's a celebrity influencer involved, same thing, Dan Martell at Maple Summit, the guy who built that is he showed up in our snowcat one day and he's just got this long beard and he's the owner. And we're like, who is that guy? Yeah. And later we found out, Oh yeah, that's the owner. And then he spoke to us and he was like, yeah, I was just a, I was just a snowboarder and we rented this truck to drive up the mountain and you know, they, they wouldn't rent it to us for more than a day, but we kept it for a year. We paid him for a day. We kept it for the whole year, but he just limped his way through the inflection point was it when an influencer came and then Warren Miller came and filmed everything in the back country. And it's interesting that the Ugg Boots story, that story, influencer marketing, I think, I mean, you're in marketing. Is Have you seen big brands make an inflection point when they have a celebrity influencer get involved? In yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we work with a lot of them. I mean, we, you know, we work with a lot of celebrities. We work with a lot of athletes, um, you know, athletes that are in the NFL, you know, in the PGA and auto racing, you know, both, you know, both NASCAR, um, Indy car, um, major league baseball, national hockey league, like, you know, you name Olympic athletes and we're doing our third Olympics campaign now. So we're working with a bunch of Olympic athletes. I mean, there, you know, I think big brands and small brands, both, you know, they both have the same challenge when it comes to influencers and, and that is, are you aligning well with your brand, you know, with these people? How far are you willing to allow them to take it, if at all? Because sometimes brands are just willing to spend a lot of money, but tell the influencers what they have to do, which is maybe in some ways counterintuitive um, to the purpose of it. Um, you know, but, but look, it's, it's no different than, than any other form of marketing. Um, I mean, you need to plan well, have a good foundational structure for your plan, uh, know how to execute well against it, know what your measurement goals are, and then hold yourself accountable to them. And if they change or aren't successful on the way, be able to pivot and change and move um, and be somewhat nimble you know, within that, that structure. But we have seen lots of success with, you know, I hate the term influencers because some of these people are truly un known people that become known through social media. And then you have people that are athletes that may have been known since they were in high school, you know, that we work with. And um, some are country music stars. You and I were having a conversation before about one that, that we do a lot of work with that is a friend of your family. So, I, you know, those things can be very successful if they're done well, if they're authentic, if they're planned and executed well. Like I said, if there's good foundational structure to how you're managing it. If there's not, then it's just activity. And activity doesn't work. Um, yeah. Unless you just have an ungodly amount of money that you can spend and it just doesn't matter. And most brands don't. Even, even really large, well known brands don't have an unlimited budget per se, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's smart to be prudent and, and be thoughtful and create structure and around all your planning. I mean, I think, I think that's where the success happens or the failure happens. Yeah. Got it. Okay, we've gone deep on some things. So I'm going to fast forward to question. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, we've got two questions left, I guess. So um, tell me a little bit about the podcast so our listeners can find you there. Parker on tap, what's it about? How do they find you? Yeah, so I, you know, I, this, this past year, I decided I was gonna do a podcast. And, you know, I've been fortunate, you know, through my career of getting to meet a lot of unique people. And some people that you would know very well, they're very well known and other people that you don't know, but they're, they are hyper successful, <laughs> you know, like really amazing individuals too. Um, and because of that, you know, I've been able to, to, to leverage that in some ways at different times and all the right manner and always care, be very careful with it, obviously. 
but this past year I decided, all right, I want to do a podcast and, you know, I want it to be focused on people that are the very best in the world at what they do. Now you might find people that are equally good, but you won't find better. And, um, you know, so I put together kind of a, you know, a list of, of 12 people that I would love to have on the podcast and reached out to all of them and they, they all, you know, agreed to do it. Um, you know, it's people like Frank Abagnale. Like if you've watched the movie, catch me if you can, like that's his life story from really from the time he was 16 to 20, um, which is when he, you know, created all that, you know, fraud and, 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 uh, you know, excitement, if you will, if you, if you watch that, yeah, you know, watch that movie that was, um, you know, he's played by Leonardo DiCaprio and then Tom Hanks was in it. So for people that don't know, but, but a fantastic movie and, but he's a real life human being. And, and Frank, funny enough, happened to be someone who lived in my neighborhood and I got to know. And hmm. so he, so, and he's just a great guy. And so is his wife, Kelly, I and mean, she's amazing. Um, and so I know a lot of his history and stories that you don't know in the real world um, or, or that people just generally don't know. And, and a lot of what's in the movie is true. And some of it's, you know, built in there, you know, by the directors and whatnot, but, but he's someone who, you know, he, he committed all those things when he was very young. And then when he got out, he worked for the FBI for years. But one of the awesome things that he mentioned on the podcast when I interviewed him was he said he told me something on the podcast that he had never told anyone before. And, and everyone knows he's continued to work for the FBI for years, but he's never charged them a dime, even though at this point they're willing to pay them, pay him. Hmm. And he's never charged the U.S. government, any government agency that's ever asked him to do anything. He's never charged, not even for his hotel or his flights. Um, and so it was just interesting to, to see that change and what he's become. Um, you know, people like Andrew Hawkins, who works for LeBron James and Maverick Carter, and is probably the preeminent, I would say, digital content maker for sports that exists right now. Like, I mean, there's other really good people, um, but he's certainly at the very top of that. Um, there's people like Erica Nardini from Barstool Sports. And, you know, she's really honest and kind of forthcoming and that she's not good at everything every day. She's a lot of failure. Um, or someone like Jen Wong, who you probably don't know her name offhand, but she's the COO of Reddit and everyone knows Reddit. And she, that was an amazing conversation. You know, it's just really good people. And so I, I've enjoyed doing that podcast. So all 12 of those episodes are out and we're, we'll probably start doing the second season here before too long. That's neat. I love it. Unparalleled. I, this uh, friend of our family named Robert White, he's graduated 1.3 million people from his mindset courses at two or three different companies over two decades, including the late, great John Denver. And what's interesting is that his, his book's called Living an Extraordinary Life. Mm -hmm. And at the punchline at the end of the book is, you know, we're all extraordinary, <laughs> right? We own, have our own individual fingerprint. So when we did the first Living a Better Story event, and there's 12 people from all different walks of life, we all got to know each other to a level that was so deep where we're like, whoa, you're the, you're the principal of a high school with 240 kids in Arizona that are kids that got kicked out of their normal high school. And so gangbangers, everything else. And she's their last line of defense before they get into trouble, into really bad trouble. And she does a real good job at it. And you're like, wow, what a superhero kind of a woman that can take that role on. Um, and then another guy, Daryl Prale, he works with NFL players. He just wrote a book called Who Am I After Sports? And, you know, he was suicidal. And then God visited him in the psych ward by two different people and said, Hey, God asked me to come say hi to you. And he was like, what? And he said, two people within the same hour. And he was like, okay, I guess, <laughs> I guess this must be real. And then, and so now he's written a book on it and he helps coach people off the ledge, so to speak. Um, it's amazing how many awesome people are sitting all around us and we just don't take the time to explore how extraordinary they are. Right. Including ourselves. Sometimes we forget how extraordinary we are. Like you said, when you're looking for the calm and when you, when you actually do take a minute to realize it and you're like, holy shit, I'm pretty good at what I do. <laughs> right? Well, yeah. I mean, and, and I think so, you know, so often, you know, even people that are really close to you, this is why when people do things that are so horrendous, like, you know, that we hate to see when they harm themselves, it's like, well, I never knew. Well, yeah, because you got to dig deep with people to really know that they're bothered 
right? And not by any stretch is that easy or perfect, but you know, it's, it's where we all let ourselves down as human beings because we're so, especially now in this culture of everything so quick and fast and easy and you can scroll and you can click and you can just get things whenever you want them. Like I can, I can click on Amazon. I can get something still ordered tonight. It's yeah. It? I could have a warm hamburger at I my door. I still have things by 10 PM. It's insane. Yeah. So, and so you don't take the time to really think through the depth of what could be. And look, I'm at fault for that too, as much as anyone at times. It's just like, it's getting yourself back reset periodically that's important. And that's where commitment comes from. You know, it's being committed to reset yourself every once in a while, knowing that you're not perfect and neither is anyone else and just have honest conversations. Yeah. Um, la last question, and we'll keep this one uh, short and sweet. What, what role does faith play in your journey? Um, like faith, faith, like, um, religious faith, blind faith. Yeah. Blind faith. Um, you know, look, it's a windy road. I mean, I, you know, look, I, I have, we've talked about this a little bit. I've had my moments. I have my moments of clarity. I have frustration. I have complete and utter commitment a lot. And I have complete indifference at times, you know, I've, I've, I've found, um, happiness and joy in it. I've also found lots of anger and frustration. And, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way, you know, like if you if you're talking about faith, like if someone says, what's your faith, like, I would say, okay, like, you know, I believe in God. Um, I struggle with it sometimes, honestly, you know, I mean, I have lots of questions that are still unanswered. Um, I mean, and that's an honest take, I don't know how to be more honest about it. But you know, but I, I do pray every night. I mean, I've done it since I was a little kid. You know, I mean, even when I've been angry and maybe didn't believe for a while, I still did it because it was this thing in me. I felt the desire to do. Um, and there's been lots of things like, you know, a lot of times, like, especially when I was younger, you know, you used to pray for, I used to pray for things I wanted. Um, I don't do that anymore. You know, it's like, it almost feels selfish to want, you know, now I think it's a bad thing to want. I'm not, condemning it. I, I, there's plenty of things I want. I can give you a list, laundry list of things I want right now. But, um, but now it's just more about, you know, finding calm and, and health and wellness and, and, you know, whether that's mentally or, you know, physically or financially or whatever else for, for not just myself, but others. And, um, you know, I trust, I mean, I have a lot of trust in my faith. Um, I believe it, but I also question it a fairly healthy amount. And I don't think that's bad, um, but that's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fair. I mean, it's interesting. I, I've told a few people in this podcast six, eight weeks ago, my son was burned badly, second, third degree burns. He caught himself on fire with a uh, oil accident on the cooking on the stove. And so poof, just blew up in his face. And so all you can have is faith, right? As parents, you're like, he calls from his his uh, college apartment. I was in a cooking accident. We thought he was in a car accident. We're like, what, what cooking? He's like, yeah, half my face burned. And we're like, what does that mean? So as parents, you go through like, what? So then we meet him at the hospital later that night. It swells up like beyond reason. And after three, four, five days, it starts to come down. You're like, okay, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're going to get through this. And then it gets worse, right? The nose looks like it's going to fall off almost. So wow. all you can do is pray. We put it out to United Airlines because my uh, my sister-in-law is a flight attendant there. We put it out to different churches all over the place. And all we could do is have faith. And he did this surgery. It's a new thing called resell. So they take a little two-inch piece off the bottom of your leg. They put it in a mixture. And then they put it on your nose, under his eyes, and on his hands. Wow. And literally five days later, take the bandages off. And you're like, Brendan, you're back. What the flip? And like, you can push on his nose and it's like, wait, that's the same nose you had, you know, two weeks ago. And, and so it was like, when you, I remember praying about it and my mother was up all night and my prayer was make, you know, I never asked you for a miracle in my whole life. And I'm like, make it so that it's the only way you can describe it is miracle. And to actually see it occur. And the play-by-plays every day to where the day before it, you got worse before it got better. You're like, oh no. And you're just, but you, but you, if you, if you knee jerk back to faith and, and everyone prayed on it and it was like, whoa, I felt like I was in a video game and the download occurred and there, and there he was. Yeah. Um, 
So it is amazing when you can hand the keys of the car over and go, Hey, look, you drive the car for a little while. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I, I mean, you know, no matter, I think where people are in their life with faith, where, or even if they don't believe, uh, you know, you center yourself somewhere on something and, and you have to have, I mean, you can use a different term, but you have to have trust or belief or faith or something that there's a purpose for being here. I mean, otherwise, like we're all wasting our time. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like yes. really, truly, like there's a lot of stuff I waste my time on if there's not something bigger than, than, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, because that would be, you know, not that you would know the difference if there wasn't at that moment, but it would, that's terrible, you know, if, if that's the case. So, um, you know, I think you have to have some level of, of belief in something. And, yes. you know, I don't, I never, I never judge people for what they believe in. And, you know, and, and you know, even like faith or, or religious conversations are contentious these days for a lot of different reasons, some, some legitimate and some not. Um, but, you know, I think having the conversation, having conversations like this with people is important, regardless of the topic, it doesn't have to be about faith, but if, even if it is having the topic about like, well, what works or what doesn't work well, you know, like is, you know, are you like, if someone's really struggling and it's just a constant, like, you know, brain cloud over them on a daily basis, well, what's working for you and what's not? you know, and because it doesn't seem like the things you're doing are working really well, you know, so let's try something different. Yeah, you know, and it could be a big change for them. You know, I, I don't appreciate people, but it's, it's, uh, you, you got to be centered somehow. Yeah. Well, Steve, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. We've been talking with Steve Parker from Level Wing, L-E-V-E-L Wing, just like it sounds. <laughs> they work with some pretty cool people out there, big brands, if your company has a need for a jumpstart marketing strategy, branding, um, reach out to Steve, you know, I'm sure they could, they could help your organization. And uh, Steve really appreciate you diving deep today on the show. Yeah. Chad, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I always enjoy conversations that have some depth to them and, and certainly, you know, this one was focused there. So that's great. Thank you. Awesome. All right, everybody. We'll catch you on the next living better story podcast. Signing out. Thank you for joining us on the You Matter to Christ podcast. We hope this journey has reminded you of the incredible truth that your life holds immense value and significance to Christ. As you go about your day, may you carry the assurance that no matter what you face, you are deeply cherished and loved. Remember, you matter to Christ. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with others who may benefit from this message. Stay tuned for more transformative episodes where we continue to explore the depth of God's love and grace. Until next time, remember that you are not alone. Christ's love is with you, guiding and strengthening you every step of the way. May your life be filled with hope, purpose, and the knowledge that you matter to Christ.